This week on the Back Table Podcast. I had my first surprise employment issue, which, you know, the thing about these things is they usually blindside you. And the first and maybe second time it happens, you don't know what to do or you feel blindsided or, you know, this is not a, a, a topic that doctors know a lot about. So you don't know what to do. Um, and it turns out when you have a competent attorney um, swoop in and, you know, take it over from there, I kind of liken it to, you know, you hear the words, you have a mass and you've been diagnosed with cancer. Well, you can't expect that patient then to know everything about, you know, stage four colon cancer they just been diagnosed with. And um, it's the same with law. You have these employment issues and lawyers happen to be really good and uh, have heard it all before. So good attorneys are the answer to that. Yeah, for sure. And, and how did you guys meet each other? Courtney saved me one day. She pulled me out of the fetal position and and gave me my life back. And we've been friends ever since. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things IR and endovascular. I am very excited to introduce our guests and the topic for today. But first, a quick word from our sponsor, RadPad. RadPad was developed by physicians for physicians, clinically proven radiation protection during cine and digital subtraction angiography. Don't bet your career or your health on anything less. Trust RadPad radiation protection shields for all your fluoro-guided interventions. See radpad.com for more information. Contact info at radpad.com for a free radiation evaluation and a no-brainer radiation protection cap. And when you uh, when you contact them, please let them know you heard about it on the Backtable podcast. Um, and today I am well. Real quick, Mary, do you ha- do you happen to use anything for radiation protection? Do you use the Radpad stuff, or have you ever? No, I haven't. In fact, now doing all of my cases radially, I'm always worried about the left side of my body. In fact, I'm wondering when I'm going to get my left-sided osteosarcoma. So from the groin, I worried about it less. I've never used RadPad. Um, and now, you know, doing radial, I don't even have a shield. So yeah, well, protection. you know what? They, they will come and do a free radiation evaluation and kind of figure out how to help reduce radiation if you're interested. So yeah, that would be great. You know, even, even the um, lead that I got, it turns out the arm shield on the lead is just the upper shoulder. And I really need my forearm and hand to be better protected. So that's a great idea. Okay, cool. Well, I'll send you their information. Um, so anyway, let's get right into it. Um, I'm very happy to introduce our guests and topic for today. We're going to talk a little bit about um, physician contracts, uh, you know, which is I think would be a great topic for young IRs coming out of fellowship or even even seasoned IRs who are changing jobs uh, or you know maybe doing something different. Today we have uh, Mary Constantino returning uh, as a guest. Happy to have her back. She's bringing on special guest Courtney Angeli, who is an employment lawyer. Um, Courtney, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure. I've been uh, a lawyer for about 25 years, and I've been doing 
uh, employment law specifically for the vast majority of that time. My practice has been somewhat unusual in that most people represent either individuals or employers. And over the course of my career, I've actually done both. The first 15 years of my career, I did exclusively employer work. And I I have uh, represented a number of hospital and uh, physician groups in in that part of my career. And then about 10 years ago, I started representing individual employees as well as continuing my employer work. So um, I have uh, in the past decade represented a fair number of uh, individual physicians who are either changing practices or going into practice for the first time um, with all kinds of different arrangements, uh, you know, for who they're who they're going to work for. Okay, great. Um, yeah, and we've got tons of questions for you here um, about this. Real quick, uh, Mary, for the uninitiated who maybe haven't heard your prior podcast or or as familiar with your work on on the SIR forum, I can just give a little bit of background. Oh, sure. Well, mine's less interesting. Um, I am an interventional radiologist and I started a OBL that I now call a vascular center. Um, We opened about four months ago. I've been working on it for about two years. I've been in one city since 2002 and have had three or four jobs, which is why I have had so much interface with an employment attorney. Um, And now having a number of years of having to deal with attorneys underneath my belt, I wouldn't say having to deal with them, having the pleasure of working in collaboration with attorneys. um, I have had experience in that realm. I never thought I would have it. We know when I came out of fellowship, you always think you're going to have one job and everybody's going to always be happy, but it doesn't turn out to be the case. So, and definitely owning my own practice and having partners, um, it can get complicated. Relationships can be complicated. So good attorneys are the answer to that. Yeah, for sure. And and how did you guys meet each other? Courtney saved me one day. (laughs) She pulled me out of the fetal position and, (laughs) and gave me my life back. And we've been friends ever since. Um, we, uh, I, was married to an attorney uh, and I had my first surprise employment issue, which, you know, the thing about these things is they usually blindside you. And the first and maybe second time it happens, you don't know what to do or you feel blindsided or, you know, this is not a, a, a topic that doctors know a lot about. So you don't know what to do. Um, and it turns out when you have a competent attorney Um, swoop in and, you know, take it over from there. I kind of liken it to, you know, you hear the words, you have a mass and you've been diagnosed with cancer. Well, you can't expect that patient then to know everything about, you know, stage four colon cancer they've been diagnosed with. And um, it's the same with law. You have these employment issues and lawyers happen to be really good and uh, have heard it all before. So, um, Courtney has saved me. And and one of the nice things about my practice is that I often do become friends with people that I consult with. And so that's fun. And I get to see into you know, every different industry, basically. Courtney, what I want to ask you about next is, you know, from a healthcare lawyer perspective, are you seeing any recent trends in physician contracts, people 
um, you know, getting into these big groups, dealing with employment contracts or, you know, more independent physicians coming across your plate? Are, are you seeing any trends recently? Yeah, there's definitely some trends. I mean, one thing I've noticed since the beginning of my career is that in many professions, people go into their work relationship just on a handshake or a verbal agreement. And, you know, that can certainly be enforceable. That may be an enforceable agreement, even if it's not a written agreement. There seems to have been in the physician culture for a long time, um, just a sort of habit or expectation of there being formal written contracts. And I'm I don't know how that came about, but it's definitely something I've seen as the absolute norm. I don't know that I've ever encountered a physician who doesn't have a written contract. So that has continued, um, as you all are probably more keenly aware than than I am. You know, the the um, whole marketplace of work has been undergoing uh, greater and greater consolidation with uh, larger organizations swallowing up smaller organizations. So I'd say earlier in my career, there were a lot more little doctors practice groups and more and more we see those being, um, you know, gobbled up by big hospitals or larger providers. And so it seems like there's a lot fewer couple of doctors working together on a corner and a lot more people working in larger organizations. So that has had some implications, mostly for, I'd say there's probably fewer um, partnership type agreements and more and more people who are physicians working as employees of, of larger healthcare providers. Um, I think there's an increasing emphasis on what the doctor's formal legal status is in relation to the organization that he or she works for. And we can talk about that in detail in a bit, but you know, whether or not they're a partner, are they an employee? Are they a shareholder of a PC, um, of a professional corporation? And if if they are, are they properly characterized? There's all kinds of issues there that we can talk about. Um, a, a big, I think, issue that's hitting a lot of industries, um, particularly with uh, I don't know, stuff going on with sex harassment and that sort of thing, is arbitration agreements. I think law, and there's a lot of similarities between the profession of law and the profession of medicine. And in the past, it was... You didn't see a lot of lawyers suing law firms, and you didn't see a lot of female physicians suing doctors groups. I think a lot of that has changed, and so there's more and more consideration being given to arbitration agreements, which means you wouldn't have a publicly filed dispute. It would be confidentially resolved through a through a more private channel of arbitration. So mm-hmm. I'm, I think I'm seeing more agreements that have arbitration provisions come across my desk. Gotcha. And we're going to, we're going to get into non-competes later, but is that, is that kind of following? Yeah, non-competes are kind of all over the map. So one thing I should make clear from the beginning is I'm sort of talking about the law generally because all of these issues, they're really governed by state law. So we happen to be here in Oregon and, and what makes a contract is going to be a little bit different under an Oregon law analysis than a Washington state law analysis, than a Texas law analysis. 
there's differences in non-compete laws. For example, in California, there's actually a prohibition on them. Uh-huh. Uh, Oregon has certain conditions that have to ma- be met before they're enforceable. And, you know, Washington presently, they're fully enforceable, but I think Washington's going to do a significant ban on them. I think that's working its way through the legislature. So, um, you know, whatever you hear from me today is going to be somewhat variable depending on state law, but I haven't seen such huge variations um, in different states' laws on these topics that you can't get the same broad brush or you can't derive the broad brush strokes of your state, uh, you know, based on some some other experience in another state. Yeah, well, that's interesting. I hadn't heard that that there's a prohibition in uh, California and soon to be in Washington. Um, yeah, that would. That's that's why I, I didn't know that that uh, existed yeah, in some states. I'm really supportive of that. I, I I'm politically reasonably conservative, and I think non competes introduce a very artificial restraint right. of trade into the marketplace. And I actually helped author some uh, legislation here in Oregon that would specifically prohibit non-competes in the um, healthcare arena because I just got so offended by seeing people driven out of the state due to non-competes. I don't think they're healthy and there's nothing confidential. You know, y'all don't have the, you know, the uh, recipe for Coca-Cola or something. I mean, you you know how to practice medicine the same way I know how to practice law. I'm not harboring a lot of secrets that I don't have to maintain in confidence by virtue of privilege issues. Right. And and we're talking about patient care, too. So, I mean, the patient suffers when they can't continue to, you know, to see you for care. Yeah. The whole community suffers when, right. when we lose uh, providers due to these things. Right. Aaron, can we just follow up right now and ask the question, what should people who are about to sign contracts or in the next year sign a contract do when that contract has a non-compete? Yeah. I feel like right now what we do is we try to argue down the mileage a little bit. We all go into Google Maps and figure out where would we work. And those of us who don't do that are signing, you know, two-year, 30-mile or whatever puts us outside of any reasonable place to practice. Those of us who maybe know how to push back a little bit may sign one year and maybe we get a 10-mile. But we're all sort of succumbing to feeling like we all feel like we have to sign these things. So. I would have a, my question to Courtney would be, should we push back? I mean, I think that we sign them because we feel like we're going to then not be able to have a job where we want to have a job. I mean, the thing I don't see people pushing back on sufficiently with regard to non-competes is, well, what if you fire me just because you don't like me that much? And then you're going to tell me you don't want me working for you, but I can't work for anybody else. And I've seen that happen. Um, and so I think it's kind of hard for a practice to justify if we fire you without cause, we will still hold you this non-compete. There's just a fundamental unfairness in that. Um, and I have seen um, uh, that happen to people and it's, and it's absurd. So when I'm consulting with a physician who has a contract that they're evaluating, that's one of the things I talk about. So that the main issues that we see legal disputes arise around is termination provisions. You know, should the person have been fired and what's the consequences of that? And then non-competes. And, um, you know, I have been 
surprised at how the medical profession, which again, in my view, has no trade secrets, you know, no, uh, no real confidential information that they need to protect as opposed to say the software field where you do see some activity, but they're more reasonable in the software field. And, and I find that doctors groups are often a lot more pugnacious and belligerent in the enforcement of these things. Ego seems to get involved and they seem willing to spend ridiculous amounts that we don't even see. We don't see lawyers fighting over these kinds of things. You know, they realize wow. like, oh, we're going to waste a lot of money. So yeah. um, I think more and more non-competes have a tendency to go the distance. People are willing to put their money behind these ideas. So I, to me, if if a practice group is saying, you know, we know we can't we can't budge on this. I would a want to know why I'd probably want my lawyer to work with their lawyer to get some explanation. But if it's just that they're a belligerent group of people that are fairly unyielding about things, I would be thinking, you know, twice, if not thrice about whether or not I want to go work for this organization. So would that be fair to say that then when you are getting a job, you get a contract from an employee, potential employer, and you take it to your lawyer and they have a couple points or you have a couple points that bother you that you would expect the group then to maybe negotiate. I mean, when we come out, we're sort of trained, like, here's your contract, sign it or go somewhere else. I mean, I don't, I, th- I think that the, if you are a lawyer that has, you know, desirable experience or resume or skills or people skills or whatever, whatever it is they want from you, most employers are willing to um, to vary the terms and to offer some concessions. Um, and, and one thing that I don't see physicians doing enough is pushing back on the front end, whereas I see people in other industries doing that all the time to good outcomes. And so, I mean, at the very least, it it will help you to understand what their concern is. Sometimes, uh, you know, especially if it's a hospital, they'll say, well, you know, no, we just, we're neck and neck in competition with this, this other hospital, and we just can't lose any doctors there, and we don't want them poaching our doctors and, you know, whatever. If that's the issue, then maybe you can at least narrow the the non-compete to say, in the event that that you know you part ways that you won't go work for that big competing organization but everything else is on the table um so i, I mean you can you it's very hard to get uh, another group to make changes to the terms of a contract if you don't know what their goals are and what their purpose is and what their agenda is and a you know usually a lawyer can either sort of help guide you as to what to ask about to figure that out or just, or just do it for you. Yeah. So that was going to be my next question is, is like, you know, when do you get that lawyer? How do you, how's it, what's the best way to find a lawyer? Like, let's say you move to, you know, middle of the Midwest, some small town. How do you find that lawyer? Does that lawyer have to be in that same town? Um, You know, could you help like maybe the person coming out of training, you know, with that that decision? find someone in the same state. And if you're in a small, a smaller community, you're probably going to find the most competent lawyers in, you know, a, a larger, um, a larger city. Like, you know, I deal with doctors all over and, and, and medical providers 
all over the state of Oregon, and they tend to get their legal services out of the Portland area. Um, not always. There's some competent providers elsewhere, but they'd be harder to find. It's a lot easier to find them in in a bigger city. You know, you, it's really vital that you get to the right lawyer and not to some lawyer that's faking it. You need to be talking to an employment lawyer, ideally, unless you're part of a really complicated corporate transaction. Then you want to be talking to a corporate lawyer, but also an employment lawyer. And here's the problem. Like if you look for an individual employee lawyer, that's going to usually get you routed to somebody who does discrimination and harassment work, which I do, but they're not going to have a good, a great insight as to what should be in an, in a physician's employment contract. So your best bet is going to be to, to, Find someone who knows someone who is just in the legal community. I'd say the bulk of the referrals I get are from doctors who I've worked with before um, or from other lawyers who know that 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 our firm just does a lot of this kind of work. And and um, but someone who's faking it will not be particularly helpful to you. I actually wanted to bring up a point here that I have on my questions about, you know, you hear a lot of people say that they need a healthcare attorney when they are going to sign a contract. Yeah. So the difference between an employment attorney, a healthcare attorney, and a corporate attorney, employment attorney is what we would need for a contract. And that is you're going to go be an employment employee of a group or, you know, you have two years to partnership or one of our traditional setups. You need an employment attorney for that in your state. Um, I do think those people can be really hard to find and word of mouth is best. Um, and healthcare attorneys deal with a lot of the regulatory requirements. I mean, they don't, healthcare attorneys, though, would be good people to point you to an employment lawyer who would be the right person to help you. Right. So a healthcare attorney, they're dealing with like HIPAA law yeah. and Stark law. So they're not okay. the person to yeah. help you uh, with your employment contract. And then a corporate attorney, and Courtney will correct me if I'm wrong, but I've learned all of this from her, so I better not be wrong on it. Corporate attorney is, I'm going to enter into a partnership. I'm going to build an OBL and enter into a partnership, and we're dealing with the 200 pages of contracts that have all of the, you know, there's usually four or five contracts, and there's pages and pages of um, detail. And the corporate attorney will help you there when you're dealing with the uh, construction of a corporation. With the with the what the structure of the organization should be, and that's usually more if you're an owner or you're going to be a potential owner. If you're just going to be employed by a hospital or a you know doctor's group affiliated with a hospital, you just need an employment lawyer. And big firms usually aren't great um, at being able to provide this service because we have this elaborate system of of legal conflicts, and so a big firm won't want to be in a conflict with say you know, the big local hospital. So they can't help you. But again, usually they can refer you to someone who can. Um, Part of why we started doing this work is we felt in, in the city we live in, there was a real dearth of um, lawyers who could provide an hour or two of assistance to a professional or to, you know, to somebody who's signing an employment contract. It's really fun work in my view, because you can, you really feel like you've, really helped the person and made a real difference in their understanding. But it's, it's, um, it's short work, you know, it's an hour, it's an hour or two. Um, So getting to the right person is, 
is the challenge. But if you find the right person, it shouldn't be that expensive because they know what they're doing. I mean, most of these, I will get the contract in advance. Um, I'll, you know, it usually takes me about 15 minutes to review a contract, even if it's fairly detailed, because there's a lot of similarities in boilerplate in these things. Um, and then I'll spend about 45 minutes doing a consult with a person. Usually they have what they need. Sometimes they want to follow up. They want me to either handle further negotiations or ghostwrite, you know, emails or whatever for them, or just, you know, help them with talking points. And that might add an hour or two more onto it. But I mean, I think if you've got a competent person who's not gouging you, you're looking at about an hour of legal work. And for me, that's on the order of 500 bucks. Um, It shouldn't be like some big, massive investment. Yeah. Because again, you know, coming out of training from what I remember, I, I think I waited until I got an offer and then I started hunting around and it was trying to find, you know, the right person like you guys were just talking about. And, you know, I had no idea what was reasonable to spend. And by, that, that sounds about right. I put yeah, what I probably I, ended, ended up spending. I think as, as, as soon as you know a community that you may want to move to, I would start looking for leads so that you can get people to run conflict checks. We, yeah. we get these calls all the time where it's like this person needs this contract reviewed within the next three days. Well, I mean, ideally, the lawyer that you're talking to is not just sitting around waiting for your call to come in. They've got a busy right. life and, you know, uh, other things going on. So um, so I think as soon as you know where you're going to end up, that's the time to just start reaching out. Maybe it's friends from college, friends from medical school who have contacts in that community who can just get you, you know, help, help you find some names. Right. And and so Mary, what you were touching on, you were saying, basically, if you're buying into something like you or do, you know, you've been doing and what I, you know, the situ- you know, the situation I'm in that, that I, I should really be hunting out a corporate lawyer, not necessarily an employment lawyer for that. Situation. Right. And I got my corporate attorney recommendation from Courtney. Yeah. Okay. Usually the same person will be able to tell you, oh, this person's good with, with, you know, businesses of this nature it's just like doctors like once you get into a good doctor you trust their network yeah Yeah. so let's get into like you know maybe again for the the newer person coming out who may this might be their first experience what are some important pieces to the employment contract or maybe the you know the partnership track contract contract um you know touch on maybe things like you know you you mentioned termination clauses non-compete is there anything else that uh could be a pearl or pitfall here. Yeah. So the first part of every contract and a contract is just a legally binding agreement, you know, that contains certain conditions that one person will do one thing in exchange for another person doing or organization doing another thing. And so the the most fundamental piece of this is defining the relationship of the physician to the organization and what is that doctor's legal status in relation to the organization. And um, and there's different things that this could be. One would be employee, one would be um, partner, um, and one would be independent contractor. So let's just sort of go through these. So employee is the most straightforward. That's going to be a W-2 relationship. You know, you're going to be paid and the, the organization's going to do, do your tax withholding. Um, you're going to be uh, subject to the workers' comp laws if you get injured. You're going to be able to get unemployment benefits if you get fired. And, you know, what's also important, and I see, see two main 
claims uh, amongst doctors and, and their employers. Age discrimination claims I've seen a fair amount of. Um, and gender and race discrimination claims. So um, if you're an employee, all of those laws, some of which are federal, but also state, um, are you're going to be eligible to pursue claims under, under those laws. Um, and it seems to me that most doctors these days are working in an employee-employer arrangement, and usually that is spelled out that you are an employee of the organization. Um, it The how you are described in a contract doesn't necessarily mean that's what you are. For example, there are, I've dealt with physician contracts that describe a doctor as, as a um, partner, but they don't really exercise any control in the organization. So as a matter of law, I've argued they're an employee and when you're firing them, it's age discrimination, for example. Mm-hmm. So it ends up being important if if things get, you know, if you get into a lot of real friction. Um, so that's one way to do it. The partner uh, or shareholder in a professional corporation, um, you know, that's another way. If it's a small group of doctors that are really running the day-to-day and the administration, administrative, and let's say you're a um, shareholder in a professional corporation, you're also a member of the board of directors, you're also an officer, and you exercise control over it, then um, that's going to be a different deal. You're not going to be able to avail yourself of the discrimination laws and things like that. Um, there's some downsides to that arrangement. Um, first, these all these laws that protect employees don't apply to you if, if that's how it actually is. Um, you may run a risk of individual or shared liability with the practice. Um, again, that's why I think it's important to work with a competent person to set up the organization so that you understand fully your risk of individual liability. Um, when if a, if a practice dissolves, um, if you're an employee, you just go on your way. If you're you know a partner, you may have some uh, rights to you know liquidated assets of the of the organization. Um, what about debts, yeah. though? If if the organization too, that's a problem. Yeah. I mean, I've I've seen I know of one practice group um, that had a harassing doctor that, you know, over the course of a couple of lawsuits, they paid out over a million bucks for this harassing doctor. And, you know, that sometimes those kinds of liabilities just get shared by the partners. Um, And so what, what I would say is the most important thing, if you're buying into a partnership, one of the, one of the most important things is that you make sure that that organization is insured out the wazoo so that you're not going to be facing individual liability. Um, there are supplemental policies uh, that called employment practices liability insurance policies that um, organizations can get to cover um, liability or at least defense costs um, so that they don't end up getting shared by the doctors. I mean, that's the kind of thing that I, I, because I'm a partner in a small law firm, we're very careful about we've maximized our um, our insurance coverage just so that we don't have to get into our own assets. Gotcha. Um, and then sometimes, you, you know, I see people who are uh, being treated as independent contractors. An independent contractor is somebody who is, who is, and this is, I think, 
the basics of the law in most every state, who is running their own business and then they coordinate with somebody else to do to sort of do some delegated work. So the per, the classic example of an independent contractor is the guy that you pay to paint your house. You don't really know what he does. You give him sort of broad instructions about the color and what the timing should be, but you don't get into the details. I don't think that that is a unless you're doing like home health work or some kind of remote work, that is probably not um, an accurate description of of a relationship of a doctor to a to a provider because they're, they're, the doctor's probably using the provider's equipment and acting at their direction. And so if if you're in an independent contractor relationship with a healthcare group, I would I would wonder about, whether or not you're, you you have a proper understanding of, of, of what your relationship is. Yeah. Well, that's good. Cause I'm, I'm a quote unquote independent contractor for diagnostic services because I read for an imaging center um, and they pay me, you know, per click, but you know, and I have a contract with them and everything like that. Um, it, to me, it seemed like very straightforward and simple, but can you, can well, you elaborate depends. on what kind of pitfalls there might be in, in that kind of relationship? Well, if um, both the provider and the individual um, run the risk of, I mean, you're not paying the taxes probably that most people are paying like FICA and FUTA and unemployment benefits and, right. you know, whatever your, you know, your state's doing to you. Um, and if the state or federal taxing authorities look at at the arrangement um, and decide, wait a second, this was an employment arrangement. Usually the employer is going to be in more hot water than the employee, um, but it, it ends up being a tax issue. I've also had people who are, um, I can't think of one in a, in a, in with physicians, but where somebody um, gets let go and they go file for uninsurance benefits and the state realizes, okay, no one's ever made insurance benefits uh, payments for you, and that get, then they coordinate with with the taxing authorities to figure out. Wait a second, does this person really have employees? But they're characterizing them as independent contractors, thereby denying, you know, yeah. the uh, public coffers of these various employment related taxes. I think what Courtney's bringing up is that. Um, we have independent contractor jobs, you know, I'm possibly starting to cover call at a local hospital and all that will be kind of our independent contractor, like side jobs. Um, but I have learned, I think where Courtney's coming from is that there are actual things that have to be met to be independent contractors versus employees. Yeah, you usually and so, have to be registered as your own business. I mean, there's all mm-hmm, these right. lists of criteria that you go through. And and just because something is a minor part of your work, it may be that it's more properly characterized as part-time employment. But if you have, a, if you're uh, Dr. Mary Costantino PC or whatever, that may be a legitimate independent contractor arrangement. Also, you look at things like, are you using your equipment or are you using equipment provided by that healthcare provider? That's a real central thing. For example, getting back to the, the painter, when someone comes and paints your house, it's not like you say, here's the ladder, here I got some brushes for you, ran down to Home Depot and got, you know, they bring all their own crap. So it's it's the same idea regardless of what profession you're looking at. So, but what would you say if I go into a hospital one day a week 
or I go into cover call, I'm using, I mean, it's their patients, their equipment, their staff, their everything. I'd have to have a more detailed conversation with you and I can't give you public <laughs> advice on the air, Mary, but we can consult. <laughs> well, I'm just saying, I think that's a really typical place where we are told that we have to be independent contractors. And I mean, what I've learned is that the employee, the person who's telling you, yeah, we'll sign you on as an independent contractor, depending on the type of work you're doing, even if they say you should be an independent contractor, that may not be the right place for you to be by law. So if- yeah, it's not, that's what people don't seem to understand. Sometimes people are like, but I want to be an independent contractor. And it's like, right. well, it's not something you choose. You have to look like there's a 20 factor test in Oregon. And so I would want to go down the list of the 20 factors with you. The other thing that I would say is that just because something isn't sort of a, a to the letter legal arrangement, the second thing you have to evaluate is, well, okay, maybe we're not getting this right, but what's the risk here? Mm-hmm. You know, what, right. what's the, what, what is the nature of the risk? And so those are all things to look at. But I'm, my broader point is, especially if you're working more than sort of a job here, a job there, if, if you're working, you know, 40 plus hours a week for an, for an organization um, I, and you're characterized as an independent contractor, that is starts to sound really fishy to me, especially if um, you are subject to their scheduling protocols and stuff like that. Again, with the painter or the plumber, whatever, they kind of come and get, I mean, as we've all had that experience, like they just get it done when they get it done. It's rarely a, okay, I'll see you at 8 a.m. You know, it, it, it just doesn't work that way. And is that because there are benefits to the um, employer um to have people as an independent contractor because then they don't have to pay. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, with physicians, it's not as much as with you know, where, where we see it like crazy as in, in the technology industry where people have got, quote, independent contractors working for them 60 hours a week. And if yeah. they, those people were employees, they'd be getting overtime because they're not exempt from, you know, physicians are pro- exempt under the professional exemption. But they're, it, it's easy for employers to you to abuse that classification. I see. You know, termination provisions are, are, are key. So anytime you're signing a, a, an employment agreement, there's the, the question of, well, how is this all going to come to an end? Um, it can be an indefinite um, arrangement. So it can just go on forever until it ends according to whatever the, the terms are there. It can be a term. So, you know, you're presumptively being employed for three years and the term can be renewed by agreement of both parties. Um, you know, so, so you want to know, is it a set term or is it a renewable term or is it just open-ended? Um, then wh- why do you get to end the relationship? Obviously, if you're the physician who is um, on the employee side of it, you want to have as many protections as possible. So, that gets into what is cause to terminate. And oftentimes, cause provisions are tied to severance. I mean, that's what you want, right? You want it to be if you are terminated without cause, which is going to be a big fat piece of disruption in your life, you want there to be severance provisions that give you time to get yourself together and go find a new job. So um, maybe that's three months, maybe that's six months, if you're a super duper hotshot, maybe that's a year, you know. Um, but but 
that is one thing that is negotiated for. I think more of what I see, especially with not with people who are not, you know, like nationally renowned or whatever, um, is probably a 60 to 90 day. And usually the there will be a notice provision. So you would get notice um, 60 to 90 days before termination. And the um, the employer has the opportunity to pay you for the notice period. And that's usually what I see happening as well. So the person gets notice, they'll be terminated in 90 days and they're off work immediately. And the employer just pays them for that remaining 90 day period. Um, and, and one thing I'd say is the time to negotiate those is at the beginning, because at the end, it's a lot, unless, you know, someone's been harassing you or you've got some good discrimination claim, it's a lot harder for, uh, for you to negotiate for severance at the end, where it's much easier at the beginning and can be a much, much more easy transition. The other thing that you look at uh, around these kinds of provisions are, are what are cause, like is, is it cause if you, um, you know, engage if you're convicted of a felony or something like that. That would be an example of a very difficult um, standard to meet. So, uh, you know, what what gives the employer cause to fire you is going to be um, a lot harder for them to get to, and they're going to be more likely to owe you severance. Usually, if you if there is a cause provision, a consequence of that will mean you can be fired without any severance and basically under sort of a don't let the door hit you in the rear end kind of a, a of a scenario. Is that what they're doing when they, you know, you hear about like building their case against you? And yes. I mean, they're trying to prevent having to pay you the yes. 60 to 90 days. Yes. Yeah. And so what and, well, and a lot of times it's people with bigger with even bigger severances than that. And if you're talking about someone who's making six hundred thousand dollars a year and they're entitled to one year severance. Yeah, they're going to start papering. And so what I would do is uh, usually if something is trending towards cause, they have an obligation to give you notice and what's called an opportunity to correct. So notice of the problem and then you have a certain amount of time to fix it. Mm-hmm. So that that sort of these are the kinds of things that we look at in the termination uh, provisions. And usually um Usually there's one that just says, or any other, you know, conduct deemed by the practice to be a violation of its rules and protocols. And that's the kind of thing I'd usually push back on. Like, okay, well, if he's not parking in the designated space, is that really cause for termination? I mean, it should be a more onerous standard than that. Uh, But that's the kind of thing I look at with the termination provisions. And mostly I just try to make sure they're in the line of the mainstream and that the doctor understands there may be consequences to not playing by their particular rules. Um, Then, you know, the non-compete, non-solicitation, we can talk about those separately. Usually in uh, employment, uh, there's some kind of of payment provision. With a W-2 employee, oftentimes it's just pretty straightforward. It'll be a base salary and then some, you know, some bonus, essentially, if the practice meets certain revenue goals or something like that. Um, Some partnership agreements, I, you know, get cross-eyed reading the way that they calculate how money is given to people. And it's, you know, it just doesn't make any sense to me. And they, what I try to make sure is you've just got to make sure it makes sense when you sit down with a CFO and say, how does this actually work? Run some example numbers of, okay, if I do this, I will get what? Make sure that you understand those payment provisions and the compensation provisions and it'll make sense. Another thing that I don't see a sufficient uh, 
uh, amount of scrutiny given to is what kind of indemnification provisions exist. I see contracts all the time where the employer is saying, like, if you commit negligence or violate our rules, doctor, you're going to indemnify us for the costs we incur, you know, relating to, you know, any lawsuit that arises. That's a little crazy. And and so what you should be having is that if you're basically acting within the course and scope of your employment, that the employer is saying, we'll indemnify you, i.e., We'll get a lawyer if the practice group is sued and you're sued individually. Um, if you know, we because chance of there being a frivolous suit is reasonably high too. So you don't want to make sure you're left holding your own bag. Um, Can you describe indemnify? Indemnify just means um, in the event of a claim and a payment that um, you get repaid. So like I'm the doctor, I sue the empl- they get rid of me, I sue the employer. No, you're the doc, you're the doctor for let's pick a random Kaiser. You're a doctor for Kaiser. Kaiser gets sued saying you committed malpractice. Let's pretend malpractice insurance doesn't exist. You end the ends up that there's a lawsuit that costs $300,000 but then they sell it for $15,000. Who should pay for that? You yourself? No. No. The employer should. And so an indemnification provision just makes clear, you know, that for all these things that have to do with the business, that that the the business is on the hook in protecting you because they are far better situated than any individual is. And, And I find there's too much in the way of omissions of these kinds of very basic things. And I have seen the ones where the group, you know, where we get into some dispute with some, you know, staff members saying, you know, he harassed me or he yelled at me or whatever. And the group is saying to the doctor, well, if she sues, we're going to have to, you're going to have to pay the cost of the legal fees. And it, it results in a lot of division and discord. And mm-hmm. the time, again, to negotiate these things is at the front end, not midstream when you're facing a claim. I mean, it would just, it surprises me that if you go to work for somebody, that part of what they have would be doing. I mean, they, it would seem like it was their problem. If One would anything. think. That's yeah. why you go to a lawyer and talk about these things. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Make sure it's covered. Yeah. And the other thing that I would say is a lot of these contracts that I see, I think they've been like cut and pasted since 1940. Like right, they're right. so bad. There's such a variation in the level of quality um, in these contracts. And it's very rare that I see one. And I think, wow, this is fairly even-handed and well-written and understandable and seems to cover all the bases. That's more the exception than the rule. And um, so you have to, that's why I would say never take it at face value. You know, half the time when someone pushes back, and this isn't just in the physician arena, but in every arena, people are like, yeah, we don't even know where we got this contract. Yeah, we're happy to make those changes. Um, So um, malpractice tail insurance, that's kind of Mm -hmm. getting into the weeds of of physician life, but um, y'all are familiar with that idea. You want to have some clarity around who's responsible for 
for paying for the tail malpractice coverage. Um, you know, claims made policy for people who may be listening to this that haven't really worked before. Claims made policies are the most common types of uh, malpractice insurance coverage policies, and they provide coverage for claims that are brought against a doctor for services the doctor provided during the policy was in effect. So when the when the doctor leaves, um, that policy may not cover claims brought after the point that the physician leaves. So you purchase tail insurance, which just means it covers anything that comes in after the fact. And if you're going to, an, if you're someone making a change in a job, the job you're going to may require that you have this tail insurance in place. So um, if that's the case, then one of the things you might negotiate for with your new employer is that they pay the tail as a condition of, you know, you agreeing to leave and go work for them. Um, but, uh, you know, to me, the more the most fair way to do it is, well, if you fire me, you should fit play that you should pay the tail. Mm-hmm. If I leave voluntarily, maybe we split the tail. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's in everybody's interest to have that piece of insurance covered. And usually there's provisions that there's mechanisms that ensure that it gets covered. Like the employer will say, we'll pay for it. And if you show us um, evidence that you've paid for it, then we'll reimburse you for it. Something like that. Yeah. And this comes up. I mean, it seems like it might not be a big deal, but um, tail insurance, the ones I've looked at, you know, 12,000, 30,000, all depends on how long you've worked somewhere. It does. It's, I've seen them from 5,000 to yeah, 30 plus thousand. Yeah. So not only do you now suddenly not have a job, but you also have a $30,000 bill. Um, and this is why the tail negotiating the tail and, uh, coverage is so important. I've also, um, avoided tail by using the same physician insurance, same malpractice uh, covered carrier for the next job. And then I don't have to get tail. Yeah. So So how can we make non-competes go away? I know Courtney has. um, It's legislative. It's like everything else. It's a legislative deal. And, um, and so in California, they have gotten rid of them. And I think I haven't heard anybody say it's a bad deal because where there are trade secrets and where there are confidentiality things, like let's say you're in a very competitive let's say aesthetic medicine practice or something, and you have all these tricks and da, 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 that may be confidential trade secret information. You can still protect that and say, like if somebody goes to a competing practice and then you see them rolling out the same kind of stuff you do, they're using your trade secrets and you can recover for that. There's all kinds of easy mechanisms to recover for that. Keeping the person sitting on the sidelines doing that, whatever that daily rate work is, that's not a good way to do it. It's a, it's a, it's a, inefficient use of resources in a market. And, um, and so I don't like them at all. And I yeah. say that, and, and when I, and I try to discourage employers from doing them because I'm like, is there something more narrow and tailored? Because most people don't have a year of savings sitting around in the bank. So people end up violating them because they don't feel like they have any other option. And then you get into this deal of, are we going to go get a temporary restraining order? It's just a, it's just a mess. So I prefer for people to use a more narrow and targeted solution to address the issue they're actually concerned about at the front end. And I, I feel like, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Courtney, but you also probably think about of an employer. If you don't, if you have an employee who doesn't actually want to be there, why would you want them working for your company? And that's one thing I always find amazing. Like, so you have a bunch of people trapped in your company. Yeah, well, the other thing is there is always a threat of I'm going to take all the employees who work right. for you and right. your best 
staff and I'm going to set up shop next door and uh, compete against you and I'm going to do it better and smarter. So one thing that I think is completely legitimate and it is oftentimes part of an agreement is a non-solicitation agreement saying you can't steal our employees. I think that's completely reasonable and valid. And those are much more easy to enforce because judges don't like the sound of that. You know, the other thing that somebody should be thinking of if they're, um, you know, in the same vein as if you're wanting to set up a competing enterprise, you still have you still have fiduciary duties to your current um, employer. So you can't be whispering to your you know good as gold practice assistant, "Hey, I'm going to go set up this other outfit and I'm going to take you with me." And you can't, you can't be doing that. It's a violation of your fiduciary duties hmm. to your to your current employer. Okay. Yeah. When I knew when I was in negotiations for my lab. Nobody, like nobody in my office knew anything that was happening because you have to act, I think, common sense. And then also knowing lawyers, you really do need to act in like an outstanding citizen type way um, because the truth always comes out and when and where and how things were said becomes really important. And so you shouldn't do things that are unethical, um, and you'll be okay. I think that's one of the reasons I've done okay is because I haven't done any like behind the scenes things. And that includes with employees. So you got to keep your big mouth shut a lot. It's yeah. also, yeah. If, if, you know, if you're looking to make it, if you're an, a doctor that's looking to make a change, that's a great time to talk to a lawyer about, hey, look at my contract. What might I encounter? And a lawyer will brainstorm with you about well, what are you worried about, you know, and talk about the areas where you need to use a lot of care. Yeah, that's very good advice. Um, you know, we kind of touched on this a little bit earlier. So what do you do? And I, I was kind of in a similar situation. What do you do with the take it or leave it contract? Um, you know, so when we, we, yeah, we, we talked about this uh, a little bit. I mean, um, there's a lot of bad contracts out there. I just wouldn't treat it as take it or leave it. And a lot of times, depending on how those are called contracts of adhesion. And as a so- sophisticated um, person with an advanced degree, who's presumably, uh, you know, this is your first language, a court is going to hold that contract to be enforceable. And the fact that it was um, presented to you as take it or leave it is very rarely going to give you any wiggle room or any excuse to get out of it. So first of all, you need to assume it's going to be fully enforceable. Um, and, and then I think you start negotiating. And if you, if they're utterly rigid about it, particularly if it seems abusive or very one-sided, I would really think long and hard about whether you want to get into a, an arrangement with this outfit. I mean, I think the way people negotiate contracts can tell you a lot about how they will be as people administering that contract and acting in accordance with that contract. And if they're rigid and unfair and don't seem interested in hearing your side of the story, it'll it'll say that. The other thing I'd say is, um, particularly if you are a... a um, somebody more advanced in the profession with experience and desirable qualities and, you know, a, a good track record, your ability to negotiate changes to a contract is directly related to what you're bringing to the table and how much they need you and how much you need them. And I would say you definitely want to leverage every bit of, of uh, ground that you've got. And, um, 
you know, there's never any harm to asking. That's what, you know, whether it's severance negotiations or whatever, people are always like, well, can, can I ask for, they've offered me three months. Can I ask for more? Why not? You know, it's never right. like you're going to pull the three months off the table and say, boy, aren't you uppity thinking you get more? That never happens. So it, there's no harm in asking. And that's where I think a savvy employment lawyer will talk with you about, well, you know, m- mostly come up with talking points about how you can make them understand that the changes you're asking for are really quite reasonable and that you have good grounds for them and you're not just being greedy. Yeah, I think that's that's great advice. You know, I was rem- I remember back to when I was first, you know, interviewing and and getting offers and stuff like that. And I thought it had to be this quick seal the deal thing. You know, I asked for a few things and and kind of met in the middle. But um, I was talking to a buddy of mine who's a, a urologist, and he negotiated over a period of like four or five months. And I was like, I didn't know you could do that. Yeah, <laughs> I, I had no idea that that was even, I just thought it was like, oh my God, I, I got an offer. It's in a town I want to be in. I need to make this happen before somebody else, you know, steals it from me. But um, I think that in retrospect, you know, it would have been wiser to take a little bit more time. Yeah. And that's also, you know, I think giving some, some thought to, well, if you might be with this, you know, if you might be practicing with this group or hospital or whatever for, the next 20 years, you know, what matters to you? Like maybe, you know, a week more of vacation time really matters to you or something like that. Um, Or maybe every little detail matters. I don't know, but you know, that you definitely should, um, should, should understand that this is what you're going to live and die by. And I think sometimes people just kind of think, well, I'm just signing a, a piece of paper and this is all standard. Like when, you, you know, when you buy a home, when you when you go through that lending process and they're giving you 400 pieces of paper. And I think we all understand that this is none of this is negotiable. Right. These are all from lending institutions and you just got to sign them. That's not the case with these kinds of contracts. So um, taking the time to make sure you understand every line of it is important. And uh, a, a good lawyer should be your partner in that venture. I remember the first contract, I didn't even read. I just looked at the number and signed it and thought, yeah, I have a job. <laughs> yeah. and, know. You know, I'm amazed what I've gotten shopping. away with. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I remember in residency, a fellow wanted to negotiate. He was staying in the university and he wanted, he had to move or move houses or whatever. And he wanted to negotiate like a thousand dollar moving fee. And I remember all of us were like, Ooh, that's really ballsy. That is really <laughs> ballsy for you to ask for that. Because I, the uh, reputation of this particular place was like, take it, here's our contract, take it or leave it. And, um, you know, enough people wanted to be there and we were all like young. And so we all just took it. And I laugh at that now because I, I used to think, oh, he's going to get in trouble. They, they may not give him his job. Um, well, and if they didn't, what would that tell you about right. the place? I mean, that they're so arbitrary and right. and sort of knee jerk that anyone asking for anything is caused to withdraw. A con- I wouldn't want to work for that. Place, right, no. right. And the you know, Courtney has a good point. You know, you ask for things and it should go back and forth. And usually the contracts that you're presented with are something that probably nobody has actually really ever looked at, you know, and It's that is I've had that personal experience where the employment attorney for the corporation, the company has been, you know, some mediocre person they hired like a long time ago and they've just never really changed the contract. So you're actually kind of doing them a favor by uh, pointing out some things on the contract and and getting it to where you want to be. 
And when, like Courtney, I know if I had a contract, I took it to her, maybe we would go back and forth one time and then we'd say, okay, enough is enough. Like, let's everybody get in the room. Or she would call their attorney. I wouldn't be involved. And they would talk in their legal way to get Mm -hmm. to the bottom of it, to summarize it. So what you're not interested in is multiple go-arounds of this contract around and around and around. Let the lawyers talk. Let them battle it out. It shouldn't be that complicated. No. That pretty much wraps it up. Anything else? Any closing remarks by you guys? No, we're going to go have a cocktail. <laughs> yeah, we're, yeah, I know. <laughs> well, thanks, guys. I appreciate it. She's going to make me go for a walk. Okay, fine. We'll go for a walk. Walk, walk to the bar. Here today. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Talk to you later. Have a good evening. Bye. Bye.